Turn in your Bible to Hebrews 10, verse 1, if you will. I'm going to take a little drink of water. Apologies to those who've been here since Sunday school and have had to listen to me for now many hours. You only have several more hours left to go. Hebrews chapter 10, verses... 1 through 10 will be our passage today. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's look back actually. and I'm going to read starting in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23, so we get a little bit of the context. So our passage is going to be verses 1 through 10 but of chapter 10, but I'm going to start in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23, where the author of Hebrews says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not unto holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, <clears throat> and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And in verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it can never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, quote, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, unquote, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, quote, Behold, I have come to do your will, unquote. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the authoring of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Amen. Well, our author's purpose here as we take up chapter 10 in these first 10 verses, his, his uh, main purpose is having shown already what Christ has done in his great work of redemption, now he moves to tell us that the system of sacrifices in the law of Moses is being done away with. The author is going to give us two reasons why this system of sacrifices is being done away with. One, they were ineffective. The sacrifices were ineffective at dealing with sin. And two, God had a different plan all along to deal with sin, and that was through the incarnation of the Son. And this is all building up to what the audience of this book ought to do, which he's going to turn to in chapter 11. What they ought to do is hold fast to Christ by faith. If you know the famous passage in chapter 11, many people have memorized that passage He's going to go through a sequence of Old Testament characters who acted in faith. And he's going to say, that's what audience of this letter, that's what you ought to be doing. 
not going back to the sacrifices of bulls and goats, not going back to Judaism. And so when we leave church today, we must understand that believers do not need to go back to any parts of the system of sacrifice from the law of Moses. We don't need to go back to any of the Old Testament ceremonies uh, or uh, system of government or anything like that. We don't need to add anything to the finished work of Christ. And the other thing is we also need to understand that the Old Testament is still useful to us. Believers today need to understand how we can use the Old Testament rightly. And so at the very end, we're going to look at John Calvin's three uses of the law. Three uses of the law. I'll introduce that today. So let's review very briefly The author is writing to a group of people who were once Jewish, who've become Christians. They've uh, embraced the claims of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on their behalf. They were Jews looking for the Messiah, and they believe Christ is that Messiah. But over time, they've begun to neglect their salvation And now they're thinking of possibly going back to the Jewish rites and sacrifices and ceremonies. And in the last few chapters, the author has made some amazing statements that we would be remiss if we didn't look at again and kind of set the context in our mind about what he's talking here. So very quickly, if you will, follow me. Come back to Hebrews chapter 8. I'm not going to repeat I'm not going to re-preach Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 this morning. Brother Pastor Jeff did an excellent job on these sermons, and they're online, and I encourage you to go back and listen to them again. This is some of the most important material in all of Scripture. But very briefly, look at some of the things he said here, 8.1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Notice he's seated. Notice there's a true tent of worship in the heavenly places. Look at Hebrews 9. Come with me down to verse 11. Hebrews 9, 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent. Do you see that again? Not made with hands that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Again, there's that idea of a true sacrifice given in heaven by Christ that has this ongoing, once-for-all eternal effect. Look down at verse 22, chapter 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Every covenant that is made in the Old Testament, starting with Adam, there is the shedding of blood. If you remember at the very end of chapter 3 of Genesis, God made skins to cover Adam and Eve, right? Animals died because of their sin. And all throughout the Old Covenant, we see that. Hebrews 9, 24 through 25 For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. The third time we're seeing that, right? We ought to pay attention if they're going to repeat it three times, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood, not his own. Right? There's that theme three times. And now in verse 1 of chapter 10, 
he takes up again for the fourth time. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never... I'm going to skip down to the end of that verse so you can see the statement clearly. It can never make perfect those who draw near. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament, the shedding of the blood of animals, can never make perfect those who draw near or those who participated in it. Now let's look at what he says in the first part, the shadow of the good things to come, because... What the author is actually doing, remember, he's writing in the first century to people that live in a culture that have their own idioms and their own ideas, and packed in this little phrase here, he's talking about, you might be surprised to learn, but he's talking about different forms of Greek art. What? Where do you get that? But when he talks about the shadow compared to the image of true things, He's talking about a style of art that the Greeks practiced. They practiced, if you were an artist and you were going to make some piece of art, you would start with what is called in Greek a shadow drawing. A shadow drawing. You see the word shadow there. We would call it today like a tracing. What they would do is they would take charcoal and they'd make a kind of a rough sketch of whatever it is that they're going to make a piece of art of. And it's, a, it's an intermediate step, right? They're going to then go on to paint it or color it somehow and make it vibrant. But the first step is to make this rough sketch with charcoal. And we do a similar thing. I know some of you uh, love art and are artists. And you take a pencil maybe and start out with a sketch of what you're doing. And the author here is saying that the Old Testament sacrificial system is like that charcoal sketch. It's that shadow art of something. You can look at it, right? If you trace something and you're good if you're good at drawing, unlike me, and you and you make a, a, a pencil drawing of something, if we took one of the cars out there and we made a drawing and we had a good artist, we could look at that, couldn't we, and say, yeah, that's I see what you're doing there. But it's not the same thing, is it? In fact, would you rather have the car or the pencil drawing of the car? Right? The car is the reality the pencil drawing is just something is evocative of it. Something makes us think of it. Gives us a little hint to it, but not all the details of it. The law, the sacrifices of the law are shadow drawing of those heavenly worships, of that heavenly tent. It's meant to show us, tell us something about it, but it's not meant to replace it. It's not meant to even reveal all of it, right? It's just the barest sketch. Come with me back to the text and continue on in that phrase. Instead of the true form of those realities, that word there, that Greek word that is translated in your Bible, true form or image, maybe in some of your translations, is the Greek icon, is another type of art where after you took the sketch that you made, you now add the vibrancy of color, or you chisel out of marble. Isn't it amazing what some of those ancient sculptors could do in stone? The details. I know there's a, uh, there's a, uh, a sculpture where the pinky's being held a certain way and that causes certain muscle to stick out and that's all captured. Uh, my wife probably knows what statue that is. I don't. I just remember that detail. But the true form, the icon, is the next phase of art where you've made it as close to the real thing as you can get. You've passed from this shadow drawing, this sketch, to the depiction of the real thing. And that would be the New Testament. That would be the revelation to us that Christ died on the cross and offered himself as a sacrifice. Now, this iconic image, this true form, is amazing, isn't it? The, like these statues and these paintings from the ancient world are detailed and lifelike. They're fabulous works of art. When we read in the New Testament what Christ has done, that's fabulous too, isn't it? But even here the author is saying that's not the full final thing. What is the full final thing? 
It's what's going on in heaven. That's what we long for. That's what we want to see. That's the promise held out to us is not just to know what the New Testament tells us. And look, the New Testament is so much greater than the old, just like that fabulous work of art is so much greater than the sketch. But neither of them are the reality that's coming. Isn't it amazing? In this one verse, he packs in all this information. And his point again is, we shouldn't look at the sacrificial system as something to desire, to emulate, to want. It's a sketch. It's a pencil drawing. And even as we love and embrace the true form, it's still not the reality. We're still hopeful for the day that we will be in heaven through the work of Christ, that we will see God with our own eyes and not through the words, admittedly good words of Scripture, words I believe are inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they're not the reality that's the final form. So having established that, look at what he's going to go on now to say about the system of sacrifices in the law. He's going to say in the second part of verse 1, it can never make perfect those who draw near. It can't deal with sin. And he uses extreme terms, right? It can never perfect. Look at verse 2. He says that, isn't it logical if the law, if the sacrifices of the law could make people perfect, wouldn't they have stopped doing them? Why do they do them every year if they made people perfect? He tells us in verse 3, they do it every year because they become a reminder that something is undone. That what the sacrifices accomplished were merely temporary, were merely earthly. Imagine, if you will, go back in time and you have prepared your goat and you've taken it up into Jerusalem with tens, hundreds of thousands of other people to offer sacrifices. And you're so proud of that goat and it's taken in by the priests and they offer it and you leave to go home. Don't you people, don't you think those people felt a certain catharsis, a certain cleansing? And what'd they do when they got home? What do we do next year? We've got to get a goat, don't we? We've got to start the process all over again. And you go back up to the temple the next year, the thought that would creep into my mind is, what if the priest didn't do it right last year? Are my sins really taken away? Why do I have to keep offering a goat? What if I don't get a goat next year that meets all the requirements? What if I get some lame, useless goat? This activity just becomes a reminder, not a blessing, but a reminder every year that something is missing. Can you imagine living under that burden of sin? And finally, in verse 4, he's going to say, again, it is impossible. Look at that term. Think about that term. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now it's not that the Old Testament law was wrong. God instructed the people of Israel to engage in this pageantry of sacrifice and ceremony. It was right for them to do it. But to come to the point where you think that it takes away your sins permanently, that begins to be a misuse of what those sacrifices were for. What were they used for? Well, look back at chapter 9, verse 18. We read this. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, 
And he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. The ceremonies and the sacrifices were meant to be a temporary, earthly cleansing ritual. One that communicated that something greater was needed. So they were right to engage in them. They were right to practice them. But they were wrong to look at them as a permanent solution for their sin. They were to look at the reminder every year and think we need something more. We need God to give us something more. He gave us this and it's limited. It doesn't do everything we need. We need God to give us something more. And hopefully you're thinking, what did God give? He gives Christ, right? That's what we're going to look at in verse 2, or point 2, excuse me. Come with me back to chapter 10, verse 5. Where the author uses these kinds of transition words consequently, right? He's trying to make a series of points here, and we're going to come to point two, and he's going to quote Psalm 40. He's going to pull out some verses from Psalm 40 to make his point. And look what he does. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Christ said, he's going to take the content of Psalm 40, and he's going to put it into the mouth of Jesus Christ. Now, if you turn in your Bibles back to Psalm 40, later today when you're thinking about this sermon, as you will for the rest of the day, hopefully, right? you're going to look at Psalm 40 and you're going to see that Psalm 40 is a psalm of David. It's David who writes Psalm 40, not Jesus. But our author here says these passages in that psalm are really being spoken by Christ through David. We believe that all of Scripture is breathed out by God, that men who write it are inspired by the Holy Spirit, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. And so David, as he's writing, he's writing on behalf of Christ. And that's how the author can say that Christ says these words. But you notice also he doesn't make any argument here to his audience about that. The author expects the audience understands that Psalm 40 is about Christ. In other words, we call that in fancy uh, seminaries, we call that a messianic psalm, a psalm that's about Christ. And as the Jews begin to look for the coming of the Messiah, they begin to read the psalms and say, hey, this psalm must be talking about something in the future, the coming Messiah, right? So the author of the book of Hebrews expects his audience to understand that Psalm 40, these verses are about Christ. And so he puts these words in his mouth. And as you read this, if you, if you want to understand what the author's saying, you've got to think about them as if Christ is speaking to them. Well, what did he say? When Christ came into the world, Christ said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. And look at verse 6. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've, naked, you've taken no pleasure. In the context of... What we just looked at in the last few chapters of Hebrews. God commanded the sacrifices. It's not that God did not take pleasure in the fact that Israelites were doing what he commanded. What the author is saying here, what the psalmist is saying, what Christ is saying is for sin, these sacrifices were not useful. God took pleasure in the fact that the Israelites were obedient and did them purifying themselves as they worshiped God. But if you had gone to God and said, hey, did these sacrifices take away my sin? God would have said, no. I don't get anything out of them with respect to sin. <clears throat> and you'll notice I skipped over a part of verse 5, didn't I, there at the end. But Christ said, when he came into the world, keep that in your mind, a body you have prepared for me. Now, Brother Kevin read these passages out of the Old Testament, and the, that verse is a little different. That phrase is a little different in uh, 
Psalm 40. And the reason is your modern translation, your Old Testament, is based on the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews is quoting an ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Maybe you've heard of it. Okay. And those translators, sometimes they take things like Psalm 40 and they interpret it a little bit for us. Right? And that's what the author prefers to use here is that this body has been prepared for me. Christ saying, as he comes into the world, he doesn't mean I showed up and there was a body and I inhabited it. In the context of the Old Testament sacrificial system, Christ comes in the world and he says, I recognize that you have prepared for me a body to be sacrificed. Do you see that there? Christ says, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said, I'm, this is not me making it up, this is the author of Hebrews telling you this, a body you have prepared for me. The sacrifices of animals, they didn't do it for you. They didn't take away sins. Me coming, taking up this body, one of the roles I will fulfill as the Messiah is to be the sacrifice that takes away sin. If you don't believe it, look at verse 7. Again, he said, Christ is saying these things. The author of Hebrews is saying, Christ is saying these things. Verse 7, then I, Christ, said, behold, I, Christ, have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. In other words, the author of Hebrews is making the astounding claim that the Old Testament even says that the Messiah would come and offer himself as a sacrifice to do away with sins. That the Son would come and take on human flesh, not grudgingly, not as a victim, but willingly, enthusiastically, with compassion and mercy for us who are offering these animal sacrifices that get us nowhere, that he would come and he would strap this whole thing on himself and take away the sins of the world. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that awesome and powerful? I want to read this to you and say all that again. It's so good. But I'll spare you the repetition. So we've seen two points here. One, the animal sacrifices were never intended to take away sin permanently. It was impossible for them to do that. And point two, the triune God had a plan called the incarnation that was meant to take away sin. The Father decreed that this is how sin would be dealt with. In the incarnation, the son agreed to come and be the sacrifice willingly again. And the Holy Spirit agreed willingly to apply that to you as an unbeliever. God has nothing of sin in him, on him, around him. If God did not protect us from the blaze of his glory... We wouldn't see a blue sky. We wouldn't see a sun. We would see the glory of heaven and it would destroy us in our sinful condition. And yet, God in the person of the Holy Spirit comes down while you're a sinner and overcomes your sin. God loved us so much that he sent his only son and the son loved you so much that he was willing and enthusiastic to come and to do these things and the spirit loved you so much that it pleases him to dwell with you even now as you stumble into sin as you have doubts as you are tempted away as you reject and rebel and have to be brought back to the cross, believer. This is how much God loves us. 
And so why would you go back to the shadow drawing? You see what the author's trying to do here to his audience? Why would you go back to the sketch of these things when you've seen the art, the full, vibrant statue depicting the reality in heaven where this is all accomplished, where this is all done? Because what did he say? Christ came, he died, he rose again, and he took that blood into that heavenly temple. And what did we see in chapter 9? Did he offer that blood repeatedly? He offered it one time, and then to show you he was done, he sat down. If you're like me and you worked outside all day Saturday, the one thing that keeps you going is hopefully when I go in I can just sit down. Is that right, ladies, when you're working on the chores at home? You just want to be done? Hopefully I can be done and I can sit down. I don't think Jesus was exhausted, but I think he wanted to show us that it was done, that it was accomplished. So look at verse 8. He's going to make these points clear. You know that the author of Scripture is serious when he repeats himself this month. Because here he's going to quote again the same song. When he said above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure, so on. And a lot of your modern translations will render his response in parentheses. Do you see that at the end of verse 8? These are offered according to the law. Don't mistake, the Old Testament sacrificial system was something the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews were to participate in. They were to do it. Then he added in verse 9, Behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first, the Old Testament sacrificial system, the ceremonies, the form of government. He does away with it. Jesus does away with it in order to establish the second. Do you see that? I'm still on the wrong page of notes. I'm just, I'm preaching here. The law was not wrong. It was misused. It was to be used and it was to point forward to Christ. Instead, it became an end of itself. They were not to stop the sacrifices. They were to not misuse them in place of faith and hope in the coming Messiah. So now that Christ has come, now that he has gone into that heavenly temple, that's the reality, and he's offered the blood one time, and he's accomplished the will of God, and he has sat down and it's done, he has inaugurated a new covenant, and the old one can pass away. That shadow drawing we can fold it up and we can put it in the record book. We don't need it anymore. You think about it as another analogy we could use here is blueprints. Why do you create blueprints when you're building a house? You've got to plan it out. You've got to determine the materials, right? They're, the blueprints serve a purpose. But when the house is built, you don't then lay out the blueprints and try to get in them to get out of the rain, do you? You fold them up and you put them in the cabinet. If you're like me, you think, man, there's a lot of things I should have done differently, right? Building this house. But you live in the house. You put away that shadow drawing, the, the sacrifices, the ceremonies of the law. He does away with the first in order that he can establish the second, the new covenant. The new covenant... Folks, is the gospel. The good news that we no longer are in our sins. That they no longer hang around every year. That we no longer need a priest to help us approach God. God has approached us. Folks, we've made a special effort to encourage uh, ourselves in this church to go out and evangelize. Go out and tell people. God will come to you and deal with your sins. Cry out to him. 
You don't have to convince people with a fancy argument or special program. Unbelievers out there are laboring away in the burden of their sin. They need to cry out to God and have him come to them. He'll do it. He's eager to do it. After all, he died to make it possible, didn't he? So look at verse 10. It's by that will, by that will of of God, of the triune God, that we have been sanctified. Notice the tense there. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, one time. Let me repeat it again. The Son came to live perfectly and fulfill the law on our behalf. He came to provide the blood of sprinkling that is more efficacious than the temporary blood of bulls and goats. And he came to enter into the heavenly temple with that blood. Not the earthly temple, not that building that was in Jerusalem. But that real temple in heaven. To offer that blood and by doing so he destroys forever the power of sin and death over the people of God. Done. Accomplished 2,000 years ago. And as great as these things are, we still look forward to the consummation described in Hebrews 9.28. That Christ will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin because it's done, right? Amen? but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. I hope that is you today. So what principles did we get out of this text? One, the sacrifices of the law are no longer useful for God's people because they were always ineffective at dealing with sin. That was not the purpose of the sacrifices of the law. Two, the sacrifices of the law are no longer useful for God's people because Psalm 40 shows us that God had another plan to deal with sin, and that was the incarnation. And three, the sacrifices of the law are no longer useful for God's people because they're going away. They've been retired. Christ has fulfilled the law for God's people. So it's not that we just take our Old Testament and we chop it out of the book and we put it in the filing cabinet. It's still, the law is still something that's on us. But understand it's been fulfilled by Christ. The sacrifices, the ceremonies are still going away and have gone away. But that moral law of God is still out there. It's still an obligation for us. And as unbelievers, we can never, there's no way to satisfy it. But as believers, Christ didn't just take it off and throw it away. He completed it. He fulfilled it. Do you see that? He fulfilled the law. So we no longer have to fulfill the law. We are now free to be obedient to the law. Without failure to it, Christ has established a new covenant. So hopefully the audience can now see that the sacrifices of the law are passing away and they should not go back to. That's his concern, right? The author that these Jewish converts might go back to the ceremonial system. But hopefully now they see that they're ineffective. Only Christ can deal with their sins. And indeed, Christ has already done away with, their, with these sins. And the audience must understand, and I think it's important for us to understand, as Hebrews rolls on, the book is going to turn to application of all these marvelous things that we've learned. And what is that application? It's to hold fast to Christ. When we're tempted to go back, when the audience is tempted to go back to Judaism, maybe their family had kicked them out because they believed in this Christ guy and they're no longer Jews in their mind. When society was attacking them for being Jewish and not going down to the pagan temple, what are they to do? They're to hold fast to Christ. Not return 
to the old system, not embrace other ceremonies that we think might help. We're to hold fast to the new covenant that's in Christ's blood. So what does that mean for us today? Well, the same thing, right? We don't need to go looking for things to add to the finished, completed work of Christ, do we? And maybe you'll say, well, I'm not looking to go out there and sacrifice a goat. And that's fair. That's not a common thing. One thing Christians are increasingly participating in, if you've heard of this, my wife loves to point out when someone on Facebook posts that they have gone to what's called a Passover cedar dinner. Have you heard of this? A Passover cedar dinner. This has kind of become a new fad where maybe some of you have done this. I don't know. Where Christians go and they observe and sometimes participate in a Passover meal with Jews. As if there's something there that we could learn that's not in Scripture. There's a number of problems with it. One, just look at our passage today. We don't need to add any Jewish ceremony or ritual to the finished and completed work of Christ. But two, the Passover cedar itself is not the Passover meal practiced in the Old Testament. It's a development of the Passover meal during the Middle Ages, during medieval periods. It's very ceremonial. But the biggest objection I have to it is that they still serve lamb. Why does that matter? We have our own descendant from the Passover meal right here in front of you that we're going to participate here in a little bit. It's got the wine. It's got the unleavened bread. But what's missing? The lamb. Christ is the lamb. Christ is the Passover lamb. Right? So when you go to this Passover cedar meal, you see some ceremony that's incomplete. A ceremony that has to be had every year. We have the Lord's Supper every week, but there's no lamb. That part's done. What we take from our supper is the nourishment that God has made us alive with Christ. There's other ceremonies like Lent, it's not a Jewish ceremony that's become fashionable to participate in. It's a uh, Roman Catholic tradition of a uh, period of fasting, and you put the ashes on your head so everybody can see. But again, Scripture tells us if we, that we are to fast, and when we fast, we're to, uh, the Scripture says to anoint ourselves with oil. In other words, we're to present ourselves as if we're not fasting. Christians that are fasting uh, and in that time of intense prayer are to the rest of the world to look like they do every day. So that it's done not to please men, but that it's done privately. So I encourage you to think about these fashionable things, to watch out for them. That we don't let them historical and cultural practice intrude on the finished work of the new covenant. I. Harold Marshall has a great quote uh, about this type of thing. The death on the cross constituted the sacrifice. His exaltation to heaven and entry into the presence of God constituted the offering to God that he made once for all. He made his offering once for all and then he sat down. This we call the finished work of Christ. If you can burn that into your brain, you no longer need to add anything to what Christ has done. So for believers, we must rightly understand the use of the Old Testament. We no longer need the ceremonies. We no longer need the sacrifices. But there's still great use in the Old Testament for us. The blood of bulls and goats is no use to us any longer, but the law can and still does show us what sin is. And this is another popular accusation that's launched at Christians. Have you ever heard this reasoning? Well, I see in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that it says homosexuality is a sin, but then it also says you can't eat pork. Right? Why do you 
oppose homosexuality, but then you enjoy your bacon. Is that inconsistent? This is what we're talking about here. One is a moral requirement. The other is a ceremonial practice instituted to show that Israel was holy and done away with entirely by the establishment of the new covenant. So Calvin very helpfully shows us three uses of the law. And I'm, I know this is, we're at the end here of the sermon. I'm introducing these three laws. This is just kind of an introduction. If you want to write them down, hopefully we'll see them again in the future. But very briefly here, the law serves as, number one, a mirror. A mirror, Calvin says. It shows us, as you look into a mirror, right, the truth is reflected back to you. We look in the mirror, we see what God's perfect righteousness is, what it means to be holy. And we see how we don't measure up to that holiness, right? We see our sin reflected back to us. So the law as a mirror, it pushes us towards the mercy of God, recognizing that we can never be holy under our own power. The law, the second thing, Calvin says, the law acts as a restraint. We can read it and we can see what good laws are and we can enact those laws. So the Ten Commandments say, thou shalt not commit murder. So the state can enact a law saying, murder is wrong and we're going to punish murderers. And there's a general benefit to society, isn't there? When we try to follow these moral laws distilled from the Old Testament. Finally, the third use of the law is that it reveals what pleases God. If we study the Old Testament as we come to know the Old Testament, we are essentially taking that mirror and repeatedly holding it up to ourselves. It teaches us what it means to be obedient to God. It shows us what we can do as believers, not as unbelievers, but as believers, how we can increasingly be sanctified and please God in our earthly life, even though we're sinful. Believers were still sinful, right? But what we ought to do is take that mirror and use it all the time. Hold it up to ourselves. This is where I'm falling short. These are the things I need to ask for forgiveness for. This is the mercy I need from God. This is the sanctification I need from God. We must use the Old Testament rightly. We cannot adopt or experiment with ceremonies uh, or styles of government. So when you are invited to a non-Christian religious ceremony, be very careful. But more importantly, guard your heart when it prompts you to add some ceremony to the completed work of Christ. As you're studying the Old Testament and you think, man, wouldn't it be great if we all stopped eating bacon? There would be adding something to the finished work of Christ. I picked that one because it's particularly unlikely in our society, right? We do not need to add anything to the perfect work of Christ. Unbeliever, if you are an unbeliever, you are on the outside looking in at that. All you've got is that shadow drawing to look at. It's not even effective for you. You are liable still for your sins before God. The old practices of the Jews won't help you. There's no other way for you to approach God other than through the finished work of Christ. After all, you can't take your blood into the heavenly temple, can you? You didn't live a perfect life. Your blood is not of any use. And you have no way to approach God in that manner. You must do what believers here have done. Cry out to God in faith. Ask for the mercy of Christ to be applied to you. End your rebellion against God and submit to Christ. Some of you here today need to do that. You need to come forward and make a, a public profession of faith and ask to be baptized. 
If you don't do that, you continue on in unbelief. So in conclusion, the author wanted to show his audience the great redemptive work of Christ and that it's been completed. And he wanted to give them two reasons why the sacrificial system was going away. And it has gone away, right? In AD 70, God really put an exclamation point on this. If you don't know the history, the Jews rebelled against Rome and the Romans came in and they destroyed the temple. And they destroyed the temple by gathering up its stones and dragging them in every direction and leaving them in deserts and in wilderness places. They were so angry at the Jews, they wanted no way for the temple to be rebuilt and the sacrifices to be restored. And about 700 years later, a mosque was built on the ruins of the temple to even highlight that the temple can't be rebuilt. The sacrifices cannot return. The author of Hebrews tells us why. They were ineffective in dealing with sin And God's plan in dealing with your sin was through the incarnation of the Christ. What we ought to do is hold fast to Christ by faith. So when you leave church today, you need to begin to understand how to use the Old Testament rightly. You need to understand that we cannot and should not go back to the sacrifices in the law of Moses. You need to, when you leave church today, cling fast to Christ alone, by faith alone. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us to do these things. We can't do them without your work in our hearts. Send your Holy Spirit to us. And for those here who have not made a profession of faith, we pray that you would convert them. That they'd embrace Christ and come forward for baptism. For those here who are believers, uh, we pray that you would strengthen their faith. No matter where we are in our walk of faith, whether we're just starting out, whether we're beset by many trials, or we've been believers for many years and know a few of the deeper things of Scripture, pour out your Holy Spirit on us and aid us to come closer to Christ. You've promised in your word that for those who hold fast to Christ in faith, that you are conforming us to his image. Lord, I ask that you would do that today for every believer that's here and continue to do it. Finally, Lord, I pray that Christ would come swiftly, that he would inaugurate his ultimate kingdom, that we would move away from the image of things in the New Testament Uh, that is good and valuable, that we would see God, though, with our own eyes, that we would experience true worship in the heavenly places with all those redeemed, with our glorious Savior seated at your right hand. It's in his name we pray these things, and in his name we pray alone. Amen.